when I look on sort of the mainstream media and Fox News claims to be fair and balanced, right? And and people believe that Al Sharpton or Rachel Maddow on MSNBC are giving them, you know, the hard facts. It's just the reality is it's just not true. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Meow, meow, Liberty Lions. Welcome back to Lions of Liberty, your home, as always, for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. And I've got a really interesting one for you here today in the 271st episode of this program, which means that you can find the show notes featuring links to all the crazy things we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 271. And I know many of you out there are facing major healthcare decisions, especially right now with the open enrollment period for 2017 having just begun. I want to encourage you to check out today's sponsors, Health Excellence Select. They have set up the ultimate free market, affordable alternative to Obamacare that you absolutely must check out. Learn more at lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is an independent videographer, editor, and computer scientist, and web designer. He is the co-founder, executive producer, and managing editor of News to Share, an engine for independent videographers and citizen journalists to contribute to the evolving news cycle. If that weren't enough, he is currently producing a documentary on the subject of transhumanism. So we've got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. I am pleased to welcome in Mr. Ford Fisher. Ford, are you ready to roar? I'm ready to roar. My question in my documentary is whether uh, the entire human race is ready to roar technologically. Will it be kind of a lion roar, roar or is it going to be some kind of an electronic roar? Meow, I don't know. Meow, meow. <laughs> I am programmed to say meow. That's how we're all going to talk right, exactly. in 20 years, when, right? <laughs> when somebody turns themselves into a computerized lion, you know, it's probably possible in 100 years. How are they going to answer that question? I, I think that's the question to ask. The possibilities are endless. And for those that don't know what transhumanism is, and we'll, we'll get into this more a little bit later in the show, but just uh, on the surface level, it is not to be confused with uh, transgenderism. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but this is a totally different thing. It's basically the idea of humans uh, sort of merging themselves with uh, robotic elements. Is that is that about right? Uh, robotic elements, gene editing, basically using technology to advance the human race, the human body or mind, uh, and at the same time, computers becoming more human-like. But we'll get into all of it later. Yes, yes. All right. Now, before we get there, let's find out a little bit about how you got here, how Ford Fisher got to be on the Lions Liberty podcast. So how did this all start for you? I know you, uh, you're, you've you been a journalist. You, you That's where your, your primary interest is. You are also involved politically. So I'll let you sort of take things, uh, whatever makes the most sense for your story. So how did you first get interested in news, video production and politics overall? Sure. So when I was 15, actually, I got a job at my local cable station, Boxford Cable Access TV, right? This is a cable station for 8,000 people in a really small town. And a lot of it was filling political meetings. And I realized just from filming this super small town's local government that the bureaucracy and dare I say, even the sort of corruption that I saw from filming that I was so disappointed with the inadequacy of of governance, even on that really tiny scale. So at a pretty early age, I had a real skepticism about the legitimacy, about the way that that governments tend to operate, 
even in 8,000 people, you know, you have you have politicians who don't want to allow themselves to be filmed, right? Resistance to being filmed really, I think, inspired me to want to film the politicians and the police a whole lot extra. <laughs> and so ultimately, I, I ended up enrolling uh, to study film and media arts at American University. So I, I went to the, the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C., to study film. And even though that's a major that typically is held by people who want to go make narrative films or fiction films, which is still something I'm interested in, I ended up doing a whole lot of news. Being in Washington, D.C., you end up with all sorts of access to all sorts of interesting people. And so the first news story that I participated in pretty successfully was with Trey Yanks, who ultimately became the co-founder of News to Share. We interviewed the Westboro Baptist Church on Barack Obama's second inauguration. I was in D.C. for the inauguration. Oh that sounds and exciting. <laughs> so this was the first time, you know, we had a school cable station, but basically we didn't have a media network beyond that. But, you know, we figured that was good enough. And I uh, was participated on the crew filming him to perform that interview. And we uploaded it to CNN iReports, which is this sort of engine where citizen journalists can send their stuff exclusively to CNN. And we actually got our story on the homepage of CNN the very first time reporting, right? I had always done, you know, local politics in in Massachusetts. And then I had kind of played around with various types of fiction film. But the first time I actually filmed a story in Washington, D.C., bam, it went on CNN. And so we kind of realized that we have a real ability, you know, real access there. We had equipment, everything that we needed. And we started making our own business rather than just give all our, all our stuff to CNN. We wanted to make an engine, which ultimately became News to Share, where we we put up most of the content that goes there, but anybody can submit to it. It's news, the number two, share.com, by the way. And anybody can submit to that and we will put it online. And then additionally, other news networks actually trust News to Share as a source for their video. So we've then licensed that footage to basically every every major news network has used our content at some point. Very early on, actually, footage that I shot was used on the O'Reilly Factor. And, you know, being in, in my first year at American University and seeing footage that I shot being used on Fox News was a pretty big deal at the time. And now it's something that's a lot more uh, casual for me. But as time went on, News to Share built up a little bit more of a name and, and really its own its own audience. Before it was, oh, we're hoping that the major networks are going to share our content and that's how people will see it. Now News to Share really has its own audience as well as the fact that the other media networks use it. And meanwhile, the sort of interesting political path that I've gone down is that I grew up in the one Republican town of Massachusetts, which is a very, very Democrat state. And so I think from a young age, I always had a little bit of political hybridism. And entering American University, I would call myself a socially liberal Republican or a liberal Republican or something like that. And I pretty quickly backed off from describing myself that way. And it's worth noting that News to Share is not a libertarian news website. It's it's a pure sort of hard news, objective news site where we like to try to cover cover the content and let people commentate about it however they want. But on my own Facebook, I do do a whole lot of commentary, mostly from a pretty libertarian perspective. And so my views sort of evolved throughout my time at American University, through my time at, at in Washington, D.C. It's the disclaimer. The, the views of Ford Fisher do not necessarily represent the views of News to Share. Right, exactly. The, theoretically, the, a news organization should sort of have no views. But it's actually it's a comment that, 
you know, Glenn Greenwald actually said something that I really appreciate, which is that he said, you can't actually be objective unless people do know what you think. Because if you're just pretending, a lot of journalists have this thing where they don't want anybody to know that they're Republican or how they vote or, you know, what, what their various ideas are. And the reality is you can be objective and also have your commentary that essentially says, full disclosure, here's here's what I happen to believe. And if somebody then reads an article that I write on some topic and they say, I see, you know, Ford's views being put into this, then, then they have the right to call me out on that. And so nobody would dispute looking at my Facebook wall that I'm a, a very libertarian thinker. But I've I've basically never had a complaint that something that I wrote or an actual video that I made struck them as biased towards the libertarian point of view. And so I think that that's really important to basically have both things. That's a really interesting take on it, Ford, because, I mean, I actually went to school for journalism uh, in the beginning. I, I ended up changing majors a couple times. Uh, but I do remember in my early journalism classes, that's that's what was really driven home. You've got to be objective. You've got to be down the middle. And, but, and I agree that's what news should be. But at the same time, we can't separate the fact that we are all humans that are, that are sort of collating this news. And we, as humans, all have our own thoughts and our own sort of philosophies and ideologies and what have you. So I, the way you put it out there and, and the way that Glenn Gre- Greenwald is talking about there, to me, that's the most honest form of, of objectivism in a way. Because if you can say, look, these are my, my views. I'm not trying to hide them. Now you can then take that knowledge and, and view my pieces in, and see if you think they're objective. Are, are my views infiltrating my work? And if so, by all means, call me out on that. But to pretend that you don't have them, well, that's dishonest because we all know that everyone's got political views. Right, absolutely. And and when and so that's why I actually find it less objective when I look on sort of the mainstream media and Fox News can't, claims to be fair and balanced, right? And and people believe that Al Sharpton or Rachel Maddow on MSNBC are giving them, you know, the hard facts. It's just the reality is it's just not true on basically any stri- any side of the MSM. You're going to end up with an opinionated people presenting their views as facts. And so I would rather have a very clear divide. My face, my in my case, my Facebook wall is where I put commentary, and those are obviously very obviously commentary. I don't attempt to brand it as objective news. And then on the other hand, on News to Share, I I write actual objective news stories. And it's worth noting, people often analogize down the middle with objectivity, and I think that there's a huge difference between objectivity and neutrality, because particularly when you have, for example, a Donald Trump presidency. He says a lot of wild things. He'll say things like, oh, two million or many million people voted illegally or something like that. And if you're going to say, OK, objectively, we have to have down the middle. Maybe we have to get one commentator who says that that's true and one commentator who says that that's not true. In a lot of cases, two opinions are not co-equal, right? In some cases, someone is just right and someone is just wrong. And so you you can report facts without trying to be neutral on them, right? If somebody, if someone leads uh, a KKK rally, I don't feel the need to balance, you know, balance it by, ha- you know, it's, it should be very clear that the clan is bad, right? It should be very clear, uh, you know, and, and in the same way, if I were to film a Black Lives Matter meeting, I don't have to, or, or protest, I don't have to then go find some white nationalists and say, well, we really need to balance it out, you know, in order to in order to be objective for this. Uh, sorry, we can't we can't release the story until I get the words from Mr. David Duke here. Right. Yes, David. Right. Every time that I go film some lefty protest in Washington, D.C., I go get a quick quote from David Duke to balance it out. No, that's not that's not what objectivity is. Objectivity is going to the event and 
filming the story. And so there's a presentation that I give often to reporting classes at American University and also Georgetown, which is I always tell them that the problem with any medium, whether it be podcast or radio or video, is that anything you convert into medium is fiction by virtue of, of filming it, photographing it, whatever. And your goal should be to understand that it is fiction, but then use medium in the best way to make it the least fictional. So commentary is more fictional than objective footage of something. But even objective footage of something, you have made the choice of exactly where to place the camera, exactly how to edit, edit it, even how to color correct it. There's all sorts of choices that go into portrayal. And so the way that somebody presents news, in my opinion, the goal should be to actually subvert the fictionalizing aspect of, of medium. And so for me, I actually, I mount my iPhone on top of my studio camera when I film a protest. And to the extent that I'm able to, I actually live stream the protest because then somebody can sort of cross-reference cross my edited video of it to the live stream, right? If I get three hours of people peacefully protesting and 15 seconds of one person, I don't know, punching another person, and then I go out and just release the 15 seconds of punching, then somebody would be able to call me out on it. And I think that that accountability is positive. So that's how you would use one medium to subvert the fictionalizing element of another one. Realistically, I can't put out three hours of HD protest video after the fact in a report. Nobody would watch it. So how I cut it down is inherently something that, I, that I'm making a choice on how to portray something. And given that, I think that journalists need to do a better job of finding ways to hold themselves accountable. That is the exact opposite method that we get for our current <laughs> news from everything from the mainstream media, from Fox News, MSNBC. It's all carefully packaged and carefully edited. And not that you don't do the same thing. You do carefully package and edit your news as well. But the fact that you simultaneously do this live streaming, that is just fascinating to me. That is that's something obviously we part of that is that we haven't really had the technology for that sort of thing in, in, until the last few years. But uh, we do. And I still don't see Fox News doing it. So <laughs> I, it, it does seem like you still have a, a bit of a different attitude than the mainstream does. Right. And so. I think that that would be really important. That's something that I would like to see in the mainstream. I think one of the most poignant example of this is, is that I remember seeing Bill O'Reilly once refer to Black Lives Matter as basically an anti-white hate group or something. And he showed about five seconds of A-roll footage of Black Lives Matter. It was a giant rally and he cut the and he showed the one spot and I've never in my life heard Black Lives Matter ever say this. He showed one spot where they said, what do we want? Dead cops. When do we want it now? I've I've never heard. I've filmed probably 20 different Black Lives Matter marches. I've never heard them say that. Right. People can have various opinions on the movement. But to just show that is is obviously a manipulation of of the way that that movement tries to portray itself. And Bill O'Reilly just showed that. And then you know, called them like a hate group or something. And to somebody who actually just watches Bill or, you know, Bill O'Reilly, the O'Reilly factor or Fox News in general, they might actually be led to believe that's all that Black Lives Matter is out there doing. And so I almost can't blame certain people who have misperceptions of other groups. But when you have objective journalists, you know, people who want to use different mediums to really, really show the story and let people make their own decisions, then I think you have a more informed public that at least has the tools to make the right decision, whether they then understand that content or, or, you know, make their own opinions the right way. You know, that's not really the job of the journalist to force them one way or another. 
Let's dive into that a little bit more since you've covered so many Black Lives Matter rallies. What is your thoughts on the the real objective of the Black Lives Matter movement? And obviously, you, you talk about a movement, and there's so many different people. I'm sure there are people within the Black Lives Matter movement who are completely honest in their objectives, completely just want to see less dead black people by cops and nothing more. And while I'm sure there are also other fringe elements that are just completely racist against white people, I'm sure both of those elements exist within the movement. The question is really, do they represent the overall movement? And it's really hard to say because right. like you pointed out, we all we ever get are from these rallies are little snippets here and there that were carefully edited, carefully produced, carefully packaged for our consumption. So as someone who's really been to these rallies and protests in real time, what are your overall thoughts? Sure. So I've been mostly to the Washington, D.C. Black Lives Matter type marches, and I've also I was also in Baltimore during the sort of week of riots in April to May of 2015, uh, during which I was arrested, by the way. I'm sure that'll come up a little later. But in Washington, D.C., which is where I have sort of the most experience with it, and that was and that's a little bit different from a riot situation. So people sometimes kind of uh, conflate riots with protests, but at least in the context of DC protests, they tend to have huge numbers of people turning out. And there are a few different categories of people. So it's first worth noting that Black Lives Matter is very decentralized, sort of like a libertarian might think of anonymous or more familiar with you know the anonymous movement, very decentralized. There is one actual founder of Black Lives Matter, and now her name escapes me, but I've talked to her on one occasion about uh, filming cops. But Generally speaking, it tends to be almost these real, like unofficial chapters. So somebody will say we're having a march from the White House to the Capitol or whatever it is. And right now it's actually Trump Tower is really the central place that these protests target. And they turn out huge numbers. And I would say that it's mostly 18 to 25 year olds, pretty diverse in terms of gender, more African-Americans than than whites, but also not exclusively African-American. And I would say that it's a lot of the same community that goes out to protest in D.C. for other reasons also. So there's another organization called Code Pink in D.C., which is basically an anti-war women's organization that leads a lot of protests. And so when I go to those, I see the same protesters out there basically every single day. And so Black Lives Matter ends up having a lot of the same people who participate in anti-war protests, who participate in pro-Palestine protests, in particular in 2014 was when I covered a lot of those. So there's a lot of actual committed activists who are out there on the streets every time that there's one of these big marches. And I would say that that most of them on some level care about it. So you do have your sort of high-level intellectual leaders, people who actually want to speak. And then you have a ton of people who kind of just want to be there to be part of the crowd to march and they believe in it, but it's not necessarily their big thing. They're certainly not a professional activist. They're just a normal person with a job who has has the political opinion that, look, I think that there's a problem out there and I'm out here to you know just hold a sign or what have you. A sort of stereotype or criticism of Black Lives Matter has been, oh, well, they end up conducing looting or crime. And I've seen that happen on a couple of occasions. On one night in Baltimore, I followed a group that had basically gotten really out of hand and they basically ran off from the police. And it was probably about 200 people ran about a mile and the whole way through they smashed windows and basically took stuff. I've only seen that kind of extreme thing happen once and I didn't see that happen in Washington, D.C. That was in Baltimore and very soon after the death of Freddie Gray. 
in DC, I've actually only witnessed looting happen a couple of times by really small subsections. There was one time that there was a, a crowd of maybe 700 to 1,000 people, and there was a 7-Eleven coming up. I wanted to get Gatorade, and I ran maybe three blocks ahead of the whole protest so that by the time I got out, they would I'd be back in the crowd. And so I ran ahead, and then some of them caught up while I was still in there. And there was this one guy who actually grabbed a sandwich off the shelf. He looked at the cashier, and he just goes, fuck you. And then he walks out the door. <laughs> it was one of the, I mean, it was sort of appalling. Like, as, as somebody who's a moral individual who doesn't sure. like seeing people <laughs> steal from people, it's like, oh, my God, that's terrible. But there's a little part of me that it was actually one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I mean, it, it made what, me laugh just you telling me, so there is humor in it. He didn't sneak out. He didn't run out. He literally took the sandwich, looked at the cashier, and said, fuck you, and walked out the door. <laughs> But so then people start coming in and they started trying to pour themselves soda and then run out the door. And maybe only about four people ended up doing that before one of the leaders actually entered and started screaming at them and was like the, her exact words were, y'all are ratchet as fuck. Get out of here. <laughs> and so the, the people who are actually leading these protests really don't want to see it fall into violence and they really don't want to see it fall into looting because as soon as that happens they know that that's what's going to end up on the media right if i film three hours of of protest and there's one broken window and there's one time that i film someone steal something the reality is i have to include it it is part of the story and i and if i just put that out that's not objective. That's not neutral. But it is one of the things that I that I would certainly have to show. And and in that case, I did. But I also actually showed that woman calling them out. So in general, I would say, and I think this is true of, of most activism, not exclusively Black Lives Matter, that there are a few sort of select individuals who will co-opt a movement that go to some movement because they want to fight police officers, because they want to steal stuff, right? Basically, people who aren't actually that aligned with the mission and just want to take advantage of the opportunity. But but by and large, I would not say that those are the people leading the movement. It's not like any of these movements are just, you know, a cover up so that people can go commit crime. Afford, you mentioned you mentioned getting to it later, but later is now. So I got to hear the story about you getting arrested. <laughs> uh, you can you can search Ford Fisher arrested and you'll be able to find the footage. Uh, so video is online on the on the final day of curfew in Baltimore. So so during the riots in Baltimore, the mayor imposed a curfew of 10 p.m., basically saying if you're outside past 10 p.m., then you're guilty of a misdemeanor crime, right? And the last day of the curfew, they had actually indicted the Baltimore Six, which were the six police officers involved in the death of Freddie Gray. So protesters were actually celebrating. There was music. People were dancing and stuff throughout the day, and we were there filming that. This was myself and Trey Inks, the co-founder. And then at exactly 10 p.m., everything turns you know, really changes the attitude. So they send in the National Guard right before they had police officers out there and actually talking with people, engaging with people like human beings, right? And it was great. But then 10 p.m., they rolled in the National Guard wearing all their equipment. You know, they brought out crowd control pepper spray. They had a helicopter above head that said, if you do not move, you are subject to arrest, right? And so basically what happened was one person walked up and his name was Larry Lormax walked up to a crowd of police officers and he was wearing a t-shirt that said, fuck the police. And he started yelling at them, arrest me, arrest me. And of course he was being essentially sarcastic. He was saying, are you actually going to arrest me 
because we're out late, right? Everyone is basically across the street from the police, subject to arrest, but not actively being arrested. They're basically and, practicing mass civil disobedience to this curfew. Right, exactly. So so what they and what they were protesting once the curfew happened was the curfew itself. It was we're not doing anything violent. You've done what we asked for anyway, so there's no reason that violence would happen, but now you're sort of oppressing our, you know, civil rights anyway. And so this one guy walked up to them and said, arrest me, arrest me. And one police officer went up to him with crowd control pepper spray. And so I want to reiterate the difference, right? So somebody might carry a cop or, or just a person in, in their purse or whatever might carry a, a pepper spray that you'd spray in somebody's face. But there's also crowd control pepper spray, which looks a little bit more like a small fire hydrant. And you spray it at an entire crowd to disperse, you know, 50 people at once. And this cop, goes up to him and at point blank, probably a foot and a half from his face, he sprays crowd control pepper spray in his face. And this guy just stands there like he eats pepper spray for breakfast. And the cops are shocked looking at him because they probably just burned his face off or blinded him or whatever. And a cop goes up behind him and pulls him down on the ground. And there's actually a photo, uh, a previous cover photo of mine where Trey and I are, are basically photographing this happening. And there's a photo of us in front of him as this police officer is mid pulling him to the ground by his hair. It was just unbelievable. But so once that happened right now, all the protesters were mad because this was a real act of aggression against one of their people. He had done nothing violent. And this guy pulled, you know, pepper sprayed him in the face and, and pulled him down, you know, from the back. It was totally an unreasonable use of force. And so then somebody throws a glass bottle at the co- at, a, at the cops, and basically it turns into this big thing. They start pepper spraying the actual people. And ultimately what happens is the police try to make a, a press pen, as I would refer to it, which is they put the police tape around the press, and they're like, this is your media zone, you know, because the free speech, free speech, the First Amendment, only applies on, on this exact area of the sidewalk. And... I basically, I wasn't going to just stand there. So I went with, I started filming from across the street. There was one group of protesters and one cop who was following them that was very, very aggressive, pushing them with his baton saying, get out of here, it's past curfew, yada, yada, yada. And so this, and other cops follow him and I'm across the street watching them push these these people. And I should note, media was exempt from the curfew. The, the mayor had put out a tweet that said, credentialed media is exempt from the curfew. And I was wearing media credentials on me. As we get a block away from where the original fight started, the one of the police officers spots about a block to our left, there's this guy wearing a blue shirt who, and the reason I know that is because he screams blue shirt, blue shirt. There's a guy with a blue shirt who they noticed who had thrown a glass bottle at them earlier. And they were originally not going to try to chase him, but then an MRAP drives right to the intersection and they point at the, they tell the MRAP basically, go get the guy in the blue shirt. And so... Then those cops are running on foot, and also the MRAP is driving toward that guy. And as National Guard got involved in also a, hel- a, a search helicopter. And so the chase went on for about three blocks that I filmed the police chasing this guy. And eventually the MRAP got ahead of the guy, and National Guard unloaded and took him down. When I crossed the past this one corner... All of the National Guard who had just unloaded, they start walking towards me and they start screaming, back off, back off. You're interfering with an arrest. And then they say, let's see your credentials. Let's see your credentials. And I showed them the credentials. And actually, on using my camera, I pointed the camera down at the credentials so that when this becomes evidence, right, you can look down and you can actually see that they were there. And 
I say my name out loud, and one of the police officers actually says he's credentialed media. He actually used the words out loud, he's credentialed media, which means don't arrest him. Right. And Detective Daniel Hersel of the Baltimore Police Department, and this is a cop with an egregious history of violence that I can quickly mention right after, comes up behind me, and the last thing you hear on camera is he says, and I quote, I don't care. <laughs> and <laughs> literally, the the National Guard tells him I'm, he's credentialed media. and. Daniel Hersel, Detective Daniel Hersel runs up from behind me, pushes me face first on the ground and says, I don't care. Wow. And uh, not even pretending that there's a misunderstanding or anything. He's acknowledging that he heard them care. and saying, I don't give a shit. Right. I, I just found that so unbelievable. I mean, that was the most surprising thing about the whole thing. But anyway, they he ends up walking me back to the paddy wagon, uh, which I've since learned is actually a derogatory term because it implies that Irish people end up getting arrested. But I had, anyway, never, I had never really thought about that term before. But now that you I, say I it like never that, heard like, of it wow. when talking to somebody about it, I was like, well, we, they walked us back to the paddy wagon and someone was like, whoa, whoa, whoa you know that that's racist. I was like, what? <laughs> anyway. Wow. I, I never so, put that together. And I, I recently did 23 and me and I'm like 90 percent Irish. So now I'm offended by paddy wagon. Right. So they walked me back to the, so now, but I don't really know the other word for it. So I've literally just been saying paddy wagon and then reiterate and then saying, but by the way, it's not a good thing to say, which, which totally doesn't fix it. But anyway, um, they walked me back to there and the cop leaves. He actually hands me off to other police officers and basically says, you deal with him. And these other cops are like, what do we actually, what do we do with him? And I said, he arrested me for curfew violation. My press credential is right here. I'm still in handcuffs. I'm like, what? are you really going to process this arrest? Does that make sense? And the again, the co-founder Trey Yanks ran over. He was in the press pen until until that moment. He ran over and basically they gave him my stuff. And he was able to film this encounter. Twice they said, oh, yeah, he we're going to process him for curfew violation. And then they call into their base to ask, what should we do? And the base... the their HQ or whoever basically tells them, no, we don't want media in the jail. So don't process him in the jail. And so the cops actually uncuffed me, put me in the front of a police car with another police officer in the back of it and drove me to a police station that they were using as an HQ that they weren't processing anyone else at. This is where the National Guard is, you know, locking and loading to go outside, but not not at all a jail or, you know, anything like that. And this cop who apparently is a narcotics officer and I later look him look him up and he's actually shot someone before right who he tells me I've never written a citation in my life but now I've got to do this he actually dusts off I mean I this is so visual to me that I remember this he literally dusted off a citation book and he said I've never written a citation before I'm a, I'm a narcotics cop they told him to write it up as disorderly conduct because they knew that the curfew violation would be very very specifically violating the orders of the mayor so, okay, I'll write it up as disorderly conduct. He writes a citation for disorderly conduct. In the description, it literally just says, was acting disorderly. <laughs> and and he writes his phone number on the ticket and says, call me, and I just won't show up to court. And so they'll let you off. And I was told Wait, by a lawyer. he said that to you? Like, just give me a call yeah. and I won't come? Right. That's, I you guess know, that's nice. <laughs> I guess that's nice. I would have preferred, well, then don't write the ticket. Right. But... <laughs> But, you know, they've got a safe face. And so ultimately, they actually let me out that night with a citation for disorderly conduct. And 
I later find out that Daniel Hersel, the cop who arrested me, there have been $200,000 paid out by the city of Baltimore for lawsuits for this guy alone. He had, on one occasion, he smashed a glass beer bottle over a woman's face in a bar fight and then and poured the beer on her head. And uh, the city paid out $100,000. And he was off duty at the time. But you'd think that he'd be fired for that. And in another case, he broke someone's nose while they were handcuffed. In another case, he actually hit somebody with a police radio. So this is somebody with a real history of violence who I had actually seen a couple times that week. And he was really one of the more aggressive ones. Some of these cops really were sad to see their city be torn apart. This was one of those few guys who was just psyched to get a chance to go out there and fight with people. He was like, all right, city's being torn apart. Yeah. Finally, some action. Right. Oh, this is right. Exactly. Oh, this is my jam. Right. That's what that, that cop was. So saying. is this still a pending legal matter for you or did, did you, were you able to clear this thing up? At this point, we consider the I never got called to court and we consider the citation cleared. And it's most likely that the cop actually never submitted the citation. It was probably never in their legal system. So he gave me a copy, which I then mailed to contest it. And I retained an attorney. But my attorney tells me that the city probably never had it. And if they did, then a document that was actually leaked to us that said that someone had someone had signed a document that said no civil offense occurred. And so the city is aware that nothing happened. So on the very off chance that anything ever, that they ever try to come come back with it, then, you know, we'd be able to say this is totally BS. But on the other hand, the law office of Mur Murphy Falcon, which is actually the same one that sued the police over the death of Freddie Gray on for Freddie Gray's family, that law office actually is the same one representing me now in a lawsuit. So myself, Larry Lormax, who's the guy who got pepper sprayed, um, one person, one other person who was a protester in addition to Larry, and then two bystanders who were exposed to who, who basically violence was done unto them for no reason. Us as five people are co-suing the Baltimore Police Department for a total of one million dollars. Well, you know what doesn't cost a million dollars quite yet, Ford, and that is health insurance in America, although we are certainly on the way. So I just need to take a minute out now to tell our listeners about our great sponsors at Health Excellence Select and how they can help. And guys, I have purchased my own health insurance for the last decade, and I saw firsthand how prices just skyrocketed after the implementation of Obamacare. Suddenly, I found myself with huge premiums, huge deductibles, and being told that I have to buy this specific insurance or I'm going to get fined. I realized right away that this was a scam and that I needed to seek an alternative. And I found that alternative in the concept of health sharing. This is an amazing legal alternative to Obamacare that allows people to share medical expenses with people of similar values. For most people, health sharing is a much more affordable option, and it's a lot less taxing on your soul than that corporatist Obamacare health insurance. And our friends at Health Excellence Select have put together the ultimate package to help you manage your health care. You can learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash health or giving my rep Jeff Cantor a call. He can be reached directly at 440-283-6849. Be sure to tell him Lions of Liberty sent you. Wow. Well, we'll, we'll definitely keep in touch on uh, the progress of that lawsuit. Ford, before we wrap up, I definitely want to uh, give you a chance to discuss this documentary you're working on. Uh, really coming out of left field from a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today, but you are doing a documentary on transhumanism. You are, we touched on it at the beginning of the show there. So why don't you just tell us, how did you first get interested in this subject and uh, what's the deal? What's going on with this documentary? 
Absolutely. So right now on Indiegogo, I'm trying to raise money for a documentary called Transhuman. And basically, transhumanism, as we mentioned earlier, is the movement of people who want to use technology to amplify the human experience. So generally, their their goals include living as long as possible, possibly including immortality. Um, and they use things like, oh, we can use a bionic heart and then we'll never die of heart illness, etc. Right. Basically, make death optional. Number two trying to actually amplify the abilities of their body, adding new senses, adding new features to their body using technology. So people who might want to, and this has already happened, people who include microchips into their body that interact with their computers in some way. There's one person who lost an eye at one point and he's inserted a camera into his eye socket that actually moves around as his eye would and records what his eye would see there. Basically, people who actually physically merge their body with technology. That also includes people who want to do genetic ed- engineering, right? Somebody who might want to try to grow a third arm or, you know, turn into uh, some kind of an animal. And this is long time in the future, right? One way or another, using technology to change themselves. And then also intellectual transhumanism, trying to amplify one's neural abilities with technology or attach their computer to to their brain or even upload their entire mind onto a computer. And so some of these are things that are happening already to a limited degree. And some of them are things that are way far out. Obviously, nobody is trying to figure out immortality at this exact second. Nobody's trying to figure out the really extreme end of genetic editing yet, although it does exist for some kinds of disease prevention that's just starting to exist is, is genetic en- engineering. But overall, this movement seeks to use technology to use a sort of ultimate bodily autonomy. It's kind of a it's kind of a strand of libertarianism in that the ultimate philosophy is because I own myself and I own my body, I should have the right to do whatever I want to my body that I can. And so I have the right to experiment on my body. If I want to try to grow a third eye on my head, I have the right to do that. And that very much resembles the non-aggression principle. And I'll get back to how that can this this theory can link to the to the nap. But I actually found out about transhumanism because there was a presidential candidate this year who not many people know about because he was only a write-in candidate. He didn't have official ballot access in any state on the ballot. Uh, named Zoltan Istvan. And so he formed the Transhumanist Party in 2014. In 2016, he actually tried to get Gary Johnson to include him as his vice presidential nominee. They actually spent an entire night together. He was at, This guy was at Gary Johnson's house for a whole night, and Gary told him pretty point blank, it's probably not going to be you. But, but, but here, take this joint. I can, I can just picture right, yeah, 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 up in the wee hours of the night just having a good old, good old talk. Yeah, he said that they actually watched TV together and he stayed overnight. It's like such a funny story. But anyway, when he didn't get the vice presidential nomination in the Libertarian Party, he decided to run for president as a transhumanist party candidate. And he toured the country in a basically an Im, what he called the immortality bus, which is a bus that looks like a coffin. It looks like a giant coffin. And his point as he went around was to say that he wants immortality ultimately to be a right that in the same way that I have the right for you not to aggress upon me, that he perceives it as a right not not to be prevented from living forever, which I think is a really interesting take on the non-aggression principle. And so I, I did an interview with him in August and I asked him about politics. You know, first of all, why not run on a more major party? Why not try to get the Libertarian Party nomination? Why not try to run as a Democrat or a Republican even? 
And he wanted to make this party specifically to advocate for transhuman goals. But I also asked him about, you know, you've released this transhumanist bill of rights that says things like you own your body, you can do whatever you want to your body. And I said, are, are you not a type of libertarian? And he said that he is a type of libertarian. And libertarians generally believe, as I'm sure your audience knows, in the non-aggression principle, right, which basically says it's always wrong to initiate force, fraud or coercion against another person. And when I asked him, do you believe in the, in the NAP, he basically said, yes, I generally agree with it. And it's kind of the root or the, the moral justification for transhuman science. But at the same time, he thinks that the right of immortality should be secured such that if the, if the government were to have the ability or if someone had the ability to make people live forever, that he thinks the government should specifically protect that right. And so that's a little bit of a deviation that he'd be interested in funding science, right? End the wars, end, end a lot of the welfare and maybe replace it with, um, with a universal basic income, right? A lot of sort of Gary Johnson libertarian type stuff, a little bit kind of left libertarian, but basically that his one addition is, but the government should fund science research, that scientists should have all the incentive in the world to figure out a cure to aging, to figure out how to merge our bodies with technology, et cetera, and ultimately make humans immortal. So I, I found this topic really fascinating. I ended up actually buying his book, which is called The Transhumanist Wager. And it's a novel, but it's very, very clearly based on sort of his beliefs. It's almost a prediction for the future. His sort of prediction in this book is that eventually it'll become a major political issue where conservatives, particularly religious conservatives, will be anti-transhumanism that they'll uh, yeah, think- I, I do not see them liking this at all. <laughs> right. And that, and that there would be kind, sort of like our pol political spectrum now, that not that the left would actually be libertarian on the topic, but that the left would be kind of the natural place that accepts it. And- I could see them being totalitarian on the subject to the point that now you've all got to become merged with the robots right. or and something like that. Right, great microchipping. Right, yeah. exactly. Right, and so people t ask him about that. Well, aren't you concerned about privacy? Are, are you cons not concerned that people could hack into the microchip in your body? And he's kind of said a lot of these developments are, in, are, are sort of inevitable. And so he's not so much saying, I want to make sure that this future happens. It's more like, I want to make sure that we guide this future in the right direction so that it doesn't end up turning into like a Terminator nightmare scenario. But I think that it's really interesting because right now, this is so underground. There are a lot of transhumanists, a lot of people, you know, our age, young, young adults who believe in this, but actual medical doctors and surgeons are totally not going to touch it, right? A, an actual licensed surgeon, an anesthesiologist is not going to aid in putting a microchip into your arm. They, they just won't do it because they could lose their license. And so what you end up with is there's a lot of people who are doing self-surgeries, experimenting on their own body, trying to insert chips, flash drives in some cases, they're trying to do stuff to their body and they're doing it on their own in the garage, drinking, you know, a handle of vodka as a painkiller because they can't get, you know, real anesthetics. Wow. And so my hope with this documentary is really to highlight this movement. And I want to find, you know, there's a lot of people who are philosophically into this. There's actually a church in Florida called the Church of Perpetual Life that isn't it's not a science lab. It's a, it's basically a church, but that they're atheist and their goal is immortality. And they actually get together and talk like any other church would about immortality as their philosophy. 
Meanwhile, there are people who are doing these self-surgeries. And then on the advanced end, there are academics who talk about this for the future. And there are even some real corporate attempts to make some of these sciences possible. So one of the ones pointed to right now is CRISPR, which is actually a company that has figured out a way that when cell split, when DNA splits to make new DNA, they've actually figured out a way to edit it. So if a person is fully grown, they can't just edit their DNA and turn them, you know, make them different. They can't just insert something that, you know, makes them grow a third arm. But they have already used this to cure certain diseases, right? Theoretically, there's the application that says we could apply this to cancer, uh, to stop cancer by actually giving the cells the ability to fight it by editing their DNA. And also, in the long run, it could theoretically be applied to new humans, that you have uh, a baby in the womb, and CRISPR could allow people to actually edit, and this is in the long run, this isn't possible yet, but to actually edit the fetus's DNA. And so this could lead to basically customized babies, right? Would you want to change your baby's name? And I think that there's a lot of moral things that we have to talk about with that, because on one hand, it sounds really cool. Maybe you can stop your, your baby from coming out with any disease, right? That you can, you can prevent these issues really, really early on. But at the same time, there's always the concern that this is going to turn into, you know, eugenics. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so there's a whole lot of moral questions surrounding transhumanism. And I hope that this documentary, because nobody else really covers this issue, the media doesn't talk about transhumanism a whole lot. I hope that this will be the definitive film, that I'm going to go to all kinds of people in this community, get their opinions, show what they do. In in Texas, I'm going to a conference about body hacking in January. And I hope to sort of highlight this entire community so that in 20 years, if transhumanism starts actually entering the political spectrum, if it actually does turn out that Republicans are anti-transhumanism, right, and, and that kind of thing happens, I want to be the film that people look back on and say, how did we get here? Because we never talked about this before. We never saw it coming. So I think that this is sort of the first draft of, of the history of possibly the future of the human race. It's it's absolutely fascinating, especially this this concept of editing the genes of babies. I mean, you could actually you could actually legitimately be mad at your parents for giving you red hair now or something like that because you can say, no, you actually went in and programmed this. Why did you give me this red hair? Not that there's anything wrong with red hair. I'm just using a, a random trait here. But uh, absolutely fascinating stuff for it, and uh, definitely look forward to the documentary. Before I let you go, and I'll, I'll let you do a full roundup of how people can find all your work, including at News to Share. But definitely want you to touch on how they can find out more about this documentary, Transhuman, and how they can help fund it, because I know that you are planning to crowdfund this. Right, absolutely. So on Indiegogo right now, uh, the film is called Transhuman, colon, a documentary. So if you go to Indiegogo, there's all kinds of rewards on there. So at $25, you get a copy of the DVD when it comes out. All of these also come with social media shout outs. At $100 or more, all of the different things that you can get include being credited on the film, including on IMDb. So in the film credits, on, on IMDb, right? You're going to be a real producer of a movie in a way. So you can basically participate in the film in that way. There's also the page called Transhuman on Facebook that is about the documentary. My name is Ford Fisher. Uh, Ford, like the car, Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. I have both a page and a profile. Feel free to like me on Facebook and also add me on Facebook. I'm happy to answer any questions about it. And my overall company is News to Share, News the Number Two. 
share. And so there's news to share.com on Twitter. It's at news underscore two underscore share. And on Facebook, it's also just called news to share. So you can find me in any one of those ways. I'm happy to answer questions for any of your listeners. Feel free to contact me, hopefully donate to the film. Even if you can't donate, share, share the campaign page, telling your friends about it, seeing if they're going to contribute. All of these things help a whole lot because, uh, you know, I don't have money, but I really want to make, uh, the best quality movie possible on this topic. Well, Ford Fisher, no doubt you've got your hands in, a, in a many interesting and important areas, whether it's journalism or whether it's looking into this very interesting subject of transhumanism. Uh, I know I know, don't need to tell you to keep up the great work because I know you're going to do it no matter what I say. So, Ford, thanks so much for coming on the show, and we'll be in touch. Keep on roaring, man. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. Roar. Meow. <laughs> All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with the great Ford Fisher of News to Share. What an interesting guy, my God. So much to talk about with this dude. I, I could have gone on for hours and hours and hours. The guy is getting arrested in Baltimore. The guy is making documentaries about humans editing their genes and merging with robots. This guy's all over the place. But Ford really is doing a great job over at News to Share. I've been following his work for a while. And Ford's another great example of, of kind of what I discussed recently very recently, that is, with Jason Stapleton on the last episode of this program. If you haven't heard that conversation with Jason Stapleton, click right back in your iTunes feed, your Stitcher feed, however it is to listen to this show, back to episode number 270. But Jason and I talked all about creating your own skills, you know, building your own path in life. And that is something Ford Fisher has done literally his whole life. You know, he's, he got an interest in, in video production and news, and he went right for it. He didn't wait to get hired somewhere and, and be told to go go shoot this, go shoot that, go write me a story about this. He said, no, I don't like how they're doing it out there. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to put an iPhone on my camera and live stream everything that I'm going to edit later so that you can see what was really happening at the time. That's phenomenal journalism. If you ask me, as someone who actually thought about being a journalist at one point, but I was really, I was actually turned off by a lot of what the classes that I took in journalism taught you. And we address a lot of that stuff here with Ford. This idea of being objective right down the middle. Yes, it is what you should strive for, but part of being objective, I really like Ford's take on it, is revealing your biases because we are not robots. <laughs> not yet, anyway. We are not robots. We all have biases. And they're going to percolate into anything and everything we do because that's natural. So it doesn't make sense to pretend we don't have them. The mainstream media pretends they don't have them. And meanwhile, they're, they're attending parties at John Podesta's house for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so that's the, quote, unbiased media. Meanwhile, Ford Fisher is the, quote, biased media because he's an open libertarian. Meanwhile, he's producing the most objective news that's out there, if you ask me. So I do highly encourage you guys to follow the work of Ford Fisher at News to Share. And really, if you're interested in just the, the bare surface stuff that we discussed about transhumanism. It's a subject that I'm fascinated by, and uh, Ford is really doing a deep dive on this thing. So I do highly encourage you to check out the transhuman documentary. We're going to link to everything uh, related to that and related to all of Ford's projects over at lionsofliberty.com slash 271 in the show notes today. And as always, guys, I implore you, if you enjoyed these conversations like the one I had today with Ford Fisher, by all means, share them with a friend. This might be a good episode to do that with. Because Ford's not a dogmatic guy. He's a guy who's got many interests, and we touch on a lot of them here today. And I think there's, there's something for almost everyone in our little chat here with Ford Fisher. So by all means, share this with family. Share this with friends. Share it from our social media. You can follow us at facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. You can retweet us at lionsofliberty. You can join the conversation by coming over to our private Facebook group. That's the Lions of Liberty Forum. 
If you just type Lions of Liberty Forum in your Facebook search bar, it should pop right up. As long as you look like a real human, maybe even a transhuman. I don't know. Are there any of you out there yet? Even a transhuman we will invite into the forum to join this conversation. And of course, this Friday, you've got another edition of Felony Friday, John Odermatt's weekly look at the broken criminal justice system. Be sure not to miss that. Until then, folks, live long and live free.